So brothers and sisters, in the, our afternoon services, oh, kingdom kids, please do leave to go with your teachers. For those of us who are not going to Kingdom Kids, here in the afternoon services, we uh, look at what the church confesses about God in one of the three forms of unity, one of our confessional documents. And we've been working our way through the Belgian Confession and we have arrived at Article 28, everybody's duty to join the church. I'd like to say a couple of introductory remarks before we read Article 28. Article 28, is probably the most strongly worded article in the Belgian Confession. It's very strongly worded, and there's some historical reasons for that. We tend naturally to read the Belgian Confession and our other historical documents as these beautiful historical documents that we can read at face value and apply directly to our lives. But we have to be careful with that, and that's especially true for Article 28. We do need to understand the historical context of what Guido de Bre and the churches that he was serving was going through when he wrote this article in order for us to properly understand Article 28 and apply it to our own lives. So let me give you some brief background as to the days and times of, uh, of Guido de Bre. Most of this information you perhaps already know. Guido de Bre uh, and the Belgian Confession come from the 1500s. And Guido was, uh, I call him Guido, I'm not sure if I'm on a first name basis with him, but Guido was ministering in what is called the Lowlands or the Netherlands in Europe. And that's not quite the same as the Netherlands today. It was uh, a little bit bigger. It was 17 affiliated provinces that covered the Netherlands as we know it today, as well as Belgium, Luxembourg, and some parts of Northern France. Now, when you live in a big country like Canada, you kind of forget how small this part of Europe is. Basically, we're talking about a geographical area that if you drew a straight line from us to Toronto and then up to North Bay and then back again to Ottawa, so sort of a triangle like that, that geographical area would be about the size of what the lowlands were that Guido de Bray was ministering in. So, at the time of Guido de Bre, there was a king who was ruling over the lowlands, this relatively small piece of geography, and that was the Spanish king and the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V. Charles V. And Charles V was Roman Catholic, and he had a mission. And his mission was to purge the lowlands of Protestant believers. He wanted to get rid of Protestantism out of the lowlands during his reign. And the means that he did that was through persecution of reformed believers, of Protestant believers. If you were living in the lowlands in, those, in the time of Guido de Bray and you were reformed, or if you simply discussed the reformed faith, or if you housed or helped anybody who was reformed or who discussed the reformed faith, or if you failed to report anybody who was reformed, your property could be confiscated you could be imprisoned, you and your family. You could be killed. From 1523 through to 1555, Charles V burned alive at the stake 2,000 Protestants. So we're talking about more than one person per week for 32 years were burned alive 
in a relatively small geographical area. The French-speaking Reformed Church of the Lowlands is historically called the Church Under the Cross, or the Church Under Suffering. And perhaps you have seen the, the Huguenot Cross, which is a cross and it often has a dove hanging below it, and then sometimes beside it you get a little teardrop. And that teardrop would be exchanged, the dove would be exchanged for the teardrop hanging on the bottom of the Huguenot Cross during times of persecution. And so the teardrop was hanging from the Huguenot cross during all of these years of Guido de Bray's ministry. In 1555, Guido de Bray is a missionary and the emperor King Charles V dies. And his son, Philip, becomes the new king of Spain and the ruler of the lowlands. And you could have imagined at that time that perhaps some of the Protestants were hopeful that King Charles' son, King Philip's, would make it a little bit easier. But the exact opposite happened. King Philip's persecution made his father's persecution look like a walk in the park. He put Protestant believers, Reformed Christians, under immense pressure and extreme danger. Dan, Dr. Daniel Hyde, who's a, a pastor in the, um, in the United Reformed Church, has written a commentary on the Belgian Confession, and here's what he writes about this time. King Philip's religious zeal was even more fervent than his father's, as he not only continued and increased the Inquisition, but also persecuted the evangelicals, and that's what Reformed people called themselves, or all Protestants called themselves at that time, the evangelicals, he persecuted them militarily. Philip's persecution came to its most fearful implementation in the person of the Duke of Alva, who estimates say was responsible for the death of 100,000 Netherlanders. This is why it has been said that there were more people martyred for their faith in the Netherlands during this period of history than in the first 300 years of the ancient church under the Roman Empire. The barbarities committed amid the sack and ruin of these blazing and starving cities are almost beyond belief, he says. Unborn infants were torn from the living bodies of their mothers. Women and children were violated by the thousands. And whole populations burned and hacked to pieces by soldiers in every mode which cruelty and its wanton ingenuity could devise. End quote. So just let that sink in for a moment. This is the context in which the Belgic Confession is written. Eventually, King Philip issues an edict. He issues an edict that requires all people in the Netherlands to take an oath of loyalty to the Roman Catholic Church with horrific consequences if you do not obey. So just take a look around you for a moment at your families, at your kids, at your people next to you and then think about if you were living at that time. And the king who's been burning cities and hacking people to death and killing women and children and whole families and imprisoning people for saying that they are Protestant, for saying they are Reformed, has said to you, you must now make an oath to the Roman Catholic Church or you and your family will suffer my wrath. 
what would you do? You know what most of the reform people in Guido de Brez day did? Most of them took the oath. Most of them took the oath of allegiance to the Roman Catholic Church. Their souls had been so crushed, so demoralized by extreme violence that they pledged allegiance to the Pope to save their lives. Not all abandoned the faith, but many abandoned the Reformed Church. They became known in theological circles as the Nicodemites. You remember the story of Nicodemus who comes to visit Jesus and he visits Jesus at night because he wants to remain part of the synagogue because he's afraid of being thrown out. He's afraid of persecution. So he comes to Jesus at night. And so the people who pledged allegiance to the Pope and to the Roman Catholic Church out of fear of the government were called Nicodemites. They, they lived in fear of the magistrates and the edicts of princes. And Guido de Bray was a missionary in this context. Talk about the most difficult context in which to be a missionary. In modern day, try to think of a, a modern day equivalent. Modern day equivalent is if you decided to go be a missionary in ISIS-controlled territory or in Taliban-controlled territory, if that was your goal, to be a missionary there. And this is the context in which Guido de Bray writes the Belgic Confession. And the Belgic Confession is, of course, first and foremost, written as a missionary document, not as a, a document, as a confessional document. It's, it's accepted as that by the churches soon afterwards, but it's written in the first place as a missionary document. We know that because long to, or before Guido de Bray ever threw this over the wall to King Philip, they were handing them out in the streets. And when Guido de Bray's home is raided, they find 200 copies of it meant for distribution as a missionary document. And Guido de Bray was heartbroken about people that were abandoning the Reformed faith as much as I'm sure he could understand why they were doing it. We have a letter that he wrote in which he says the following, and it, as he writes it, it's as if he begins to speak to God. He writes this, for what is it to avow by oath the infernal doctrine of the Roman church, if not to separate from your son Jesus and leave the heavenly doctrine? Alas, it is now our lot to suffer the knowledge that in this time of shadows we have blasphemed too much and not only served you in vain, but have wickedly disavowed you. He recognizes it's a time of shadows, but he's heartbroken and sorrowful that people have disavowed Jesus. And so we come to Article 28 of the Belgian Confession, one of the most strongly worded articles of this document. Let's read it together. You can find it on page 511 of your book of praise. Article 28, everyone's duty to join the church. We believe since this holy assembly and congregation is the assembly of the redeemed and there is no salvation outside of it that no one ought to withdraw from it content to be by himself no matter what his status or standing may be but all and everyone are obliged to join it and unite with it, maintaining the unity of the church. They must submit themselves to its instruction and discipline, bend their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and serve the edification of the brothers and sisters according to the talents which God has given them as members of the same body. To observe this more effectively 
It is the duty of all believers, according to the word of God, to separate from those who do not belong to the church and join this assembly wherever God has established it. They should do so even though the rulers and edicts of princes were against it and death or physical punishment might follow. All therefore who draw away from the church or fail to join it act contrary to the ordinance of God. If you were to summarize that article, you would summarize it something like this. No matter who you are, no matter what the persecution, no matter what the risk to you or to your family, you must not be a Nicodemus that hides for safety. You must not sit on the fence. You must not be content to be by yourself and you must not rejoin the Roman Catholic Church. Everyone is duty bound by God to join the holy assembly and congregation of the redeemed, the Church of Christ. So let's flesh that out a little, looking at this article and thinking about how that applies to our own lives, although we live in very different circumstances. He speaks here, saying that all must join the church. Despite all the dangers involved, you must join the church. And when he speaks about joining the church, he's speaking about becoming a member of the local congregation of the Church of Jesus Christ. Membership in the church is a biblical concept. We have lists, for instance, in the Old Testament, Numbers and Chronicles, of the lists of the people who belong to the covenant people of God. In Acts chapter two, it talks in verse four, it talks about a countable number of people, a definable group that are distinguished from other people. Already in the book of Acts in the New Testament church, they knew who were members of a local congregation. In Acts 20, 28, pastors and elders are told to take heed of the flock of God. They know who the flock is. They most likely could have pointed to a list of people who were members in their congregation. If you think of the texts that speak of excommunication in the New Testament church, that was only possible because they understood who was a member and who was not a member of the church. Church membership allows us to know who the bride of Christ is. It allows us to know who are the branches of the vine, who are the members of the body, and who are not. So Guido de Breck called people to church membership, even under persecution, to align themselves with the church in an official way, despite the danger. So today there are no, where we are living, no edicts of princes or threat of death and physical punishment. And so we have to ask ourselves, if you are not a member of a church, then I'd like to know what your excuse is. I had somebody in my old congregation who attended our church for years, in fact, and never wanted to become a member. They never became a member. And they had had some bad experiences with churches in the past and told me, well, you know, because of those bad experiences, I don't want to become a member here. Then after a number of years, they stopped coming and I found out that they were attending another congregation. So I went to visit with them and chat about that. And then they admitted something to me. They said, well, you know the, the reason why we never became a member? They said, well, it was because if we knew that if we wanted to leave, it would just be that much easier if we weren't members. It's like they had left the back door open. 
case they could find something that they liked better and they could leave quickly and easy. Perhaps you or people that you know think along the same lines. But to be a Christian who is not a member of a church does not fit the biblical pattern. The most healthy thing you can do for your spiritual life is to join yourself to a local church, to become a member of a church, to put yourself under the supervision and shepherding of local elders. Church membership allows you to live out all the commands of the New Testament toward other Christians. Put yourself under the spiritual shepherding of people elected to the office of elder for your good, for accountability. Membership matters. Guido Debrecht calls us to join and unite to this church, maintaining the unity of the church. Notice that he says we are called to maintain the unity of the church, we're not called to create the unity of the church. If you were to jump up to Article 27, it ends with the phrase, the church is joined and united with heart and will in one and the same spirit by the power of faith. The church is already, by definition, united. We don't have to create the unity of the church. It's an existing reality that has been, been bought by the blood of Christ. We who are many have become one body. We've become a new creation. Christ has made us one. He's joined us together, growing into the holy temple of the Lord. Grace through faith unites you to Christ and it unites you to each other. And so that means when you think about yourself as a Christian, you have to think about yourself as joined to others in the Christian family. That that's where your primary identity lies. That you are in Christ and therefore in his church. You know, we call each other brothers and sisters, right? We call each other brothers and sisters here at Jubilee and we meet other Christians and we call them brothers and sisters in the Lord and I don't think that we really stop to think about how serious that is or what that really means. It's easy to say, hi, they're my brother, my sister. See, you know, God bless you, brother. It's hard to actually, it's hard to overestimate how radical and real and fundamental our unity is with other believers. Blood is thicker than water, they say. And what they mean by that is family trumps everything else. But Christ's blood is thicker than the blood of your family, your biological family. And the water of baptism is thicker than the water of the womb. Your Christian relationships with your brothers and sisters trump everything else. You're united to fellow believers. You're their new forever family. To minimize that is to minimize what Christ has done on the cross. We have to take that with deadly seriousness. So maintain the unity of the church as by being a church member. You don't deny it by being a lone ranger or a free agent. We exist as Christians in the context, in the relationship that we have with other Christians in the church. To stay outside of the visible church and float around as a believer is to dishonor the fact that Christ has made you one with other believers. To not recognize and treat other believers as your true brothers and true sisters is to see unity and not to seek unity with them is to dishonor the fact that Christ has made you one. So we're called to maintain the unity that we already have in Jesus. 
And think about it, if maintaining unity of faith with other believers was important under the crazy persecution in the time of Guido de Bray, how much more is it not important today when we don't have any edicts of princes or people threatening us with death and with punishment? We have to maintain the unity of the faith when there's danger and persecution, and then of course when there's peace and prosperity. Everyone must join themselves to the holy assembly and congregation of the redeemed, maintaining the Jesus Christ cross-wan unity of the church. And then we read that believers are to submit themselves to the church's instruction and discipline. So the church of Jesus Christ holds to particular teachings and maintains particular standards standards of repentance, standards of piety, standards of how we live our lives, and scriptures are to submit to those according, the Christians are to submit to those according to scripture. And then we read in texts like Romans 13, honor those in authority over you. 1 Timothy 5, 17, elders who lead well deserve double honor. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. And that phrase is important, who spoke to you the word of God. We submit ourselves to the instruction and the discipline of the church as that instruction and discipline is exercised by church leaders in line with the word of God. Not when it's not in line with the word of God, but when it is in line with the word of God, we submit to it. And this is a fundamental part of being a Christian believer. The church is not a democracy. You don't get to go to church and act however you want. You come and you submit to the word of God and to the instruction and discipline of those elected to uh, give instruction and discipline. And if submitting to the word of God, if Guido de Bray could call people under severe persecution to submit themselves to the instruction um, and the discipline of the church, then what excuse do we have when we live in peace and prosperity without the threat of death or persecution. Article 28 speaks about bending your neck under the yoke of Jesus Christ. That means to, to be a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ, not just a convert, but a disciple of Jesus who walks in Jesus' footsteps. Not just a name on the membership role, but a living member of Christ's church. Not just a pew warmer, but a student in the school of Christ. Not just a follower of rules, but a friend of Jesus who is growing in the fruit of the spirit of Jesus. We're called to put our neck under the yoke of Christ and pull with all your brothers and sisters in the same direction. To go and follow Christ, to go and make disciples and, and to teach those disciples all the ways of Christ, sharing in his suffering for the sake of his glory and the salvation of others. You see, church membership, it's not for wimps. It's for those who are willing to bend their neck and put it under the yoke of Christ. Church membership is not for sissies. Church membership is those who are serious about being a disciple of Christ. Church membership is not for people who follow the herd. Well, I just do what everyone else is doing. Church membership is a call for total devotion. You can't wear two yokes. You can't pull in the direction of your own comfort and pull in the direction of Christ. You can't do that. You can't pull in the direction of doing the, the things that you've always done, the stuff that, that, that you've always done, and then also pull in the direction of the Great Commission, 
You can't serve two masters. You can't pull in the direction of Jesus and you can't at the same time pull in the direction of consumerism and the love of money. You can't put yourself under the yoke of the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel, his good news, and also put yourself under the yoke of false teaching. So think about it. If bending your neck under the yoke of Christ was this important in time of severe persecution in Guido de Brez day, how much more are we without excuse today when we live without that persecution and without those edicts from princes and the threat of death and physical punishment? Article 28 calls us to serve the edification of the brothers and sisters according to the talents which God has given them as members of the one same body. God has given each one of you gifts. He's given you talents. And the reason that he has given those to you is so that you can serve each other in the church of Christ. Ephesians 4 talks about how God equips his church with gifts to build up the whole body. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now to each the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That means withdrawing from the church or just being content to sit on the sidelines of the church or willing to be a church member but basically be completely uninvolved in church life as some people in this congregation are is to rob your fellow members of the benefits of the gifts that God has given you. To do that is to frustrate the Holy Spirit who gave you your gifts for the common good. And it's to deny the biblical reality of what church membership is all about and what our church confesses about it. And this is not that I'm, I'm, I'm saying something new. This is Christianity 101. This is the Apostles' Creed saying, I believe a holy Catholic Christian church, the communion of saints. Which the Heidelberg Catechism describes as this. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers all and everyone as members of Christ have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. So how are you serving your church? You should be able to give an, a very exact response to that question. You should be able to say, this is how I am using my gifts for my church. You should be able to say that. And if you are unable to do that this afternoon, if you can't tell me how you're serving your church, then you are not walking in the path of how 2,000 years of Christians have described what Christianity is. There are no lone rangers and no free agents in the Church of Christ. If Guido de Bre called people in his day, understanding the, the dire circumstances of his day, if, he, if this was considered of great importance in, in a time of persecution in his day, how much more is it not true for us who have no edicts from princes, no threat of death and punishment in our day? It all sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? When I read this article preparing for, for this sermon, 
It's like, this sounds harsh. All, therefore, who draw away from the church or fail to join it act contrary to the ordinance of God. I, I try to imagine people reading that and saying, yeah, but, but if I do that, maybe my children will be killed. If I do that, maybe they'll throw my old parents into a dungeon. If I do that, I'm dead tomorrow. It sounds harsh, this article. Where's the understanding in all of this? Where's, where's the compassion? It's one thing to say bend your neck under the yoke of Christ, but what happens if you bend your neck under the yoke of Christ and that automatically means you also bend your neck under the guillotine? It's easy to say submit to the instruction and discipline of the church, but what happens if that means you are also by doing that submitting your family to the fires of persecution? Why this seemingly harsh sort of radical article? Why not give a little bit more leeway in understanding and some more room for compromise in a time of terror. I struggled with that this week. Maybe, maybe was it just Guido de Bray? Was he sort of a, a radical zealot? Wanted everybody else to live up to his character, to the way that he was hardwired? I mean, he writes to King Philip when he, when he throws this over the, kid, the wall and he writes to King Philip in a letter and he says, we're ready to offer our backs to stripes and our tongue to knives and our mouths to gags and our whole body to the fire. Was he just sort of a radical zealot and he wanted everyone to be like him? I had to think about that. Especially coming back from Burkina, meeting Christians whose families can be in danger. Just this past week, there was another attack in, in eastern Burkina, and they took the pastor and his family, and they killed them all. So why does Guido de Bray talk so, so strongly about everybody's duty to join the church? I think the answer is in the article. I think it's in the first sentence. We believe, since this holy assembly and congregation is the assembly of the redeemed, and there is no salvation outside of it that no one ought to withdraw for it, from it. There is no salvation outside of the church. That phrase is often attributed to Cyprian of Carthage, living in the early 200s after the birth of Jesus. It actually comes even earlier than that from Origen, born about 150 years after Jesus' death, an early church father who greatly influenced people like Athanasius of the Athanasian Creed. In a sermon he writes on the story of Rahab, he writes this, let no one persuade himself, let no one deceive himself. Outside this house, that is outside the church, no one is saved. If anyone goes outside, he's responsible for his own death. The expression, outside the church there is no salvation, was used by the Roman Catholic Church during the time of Reformation to say to the reformers, you've gone outside the Roman Catholic Church, there is no salvation for you. But the reformers refused to give up that phrase because they recognized it came from the early church and it had deep and true meaning. 
John Calvin writes, for instance, furthermore, away from, speaking of the church, further away, away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. In 1561, Theodore Bezer writes, the company and community of the saints without which there could be no salvation. They also used phrases like, God is our father, the church is our mother. What did they mean by that? They meant that the ordinary promised means by which God saves sinners is through his church here on earth, through the redeemed gathered in assembly as the congregation of the Lord, where we find preaching and baptism and Lord's Supper and church discipline and office bearers and offerings and prayers and preaching and teaching and singing. In ordinary everyday life, salvation is found in the church because that's where the gospel is preached and lived out. Of course God can save somebody outside the church. Of course God can do that. It's just not normally what he does. He promises to save us in and through his church. It's a bit like this. If you wanna go buy a bike, a bicycle, where do you go buy a bike? Well, you go to a bike store. You don't go to a coffee shop. Is it possible that you could go to a coffee shop and find somebody selling a bike there? That's possible, but normally you don't find bikes in a coffee shop, so you go to a bike store. And in a similar way, in the ordinary means that God has has laid out for us, salvation is to be found by going to the church. It's found in the church where the preaching of the word is, where the sacraments are, where the communion of saints are. In extraordinary fashions, people can be saved outside of the body of Christ here on earth but not normally, not ordinarily. The Holy Spirit is pleased to bind himself to the word of God as it's preached in the assembly of the redeemed, Romans 10, 14 through 17. Ephesians 5, we read that Christ died for the church. Acts 2 says those who are being saved were added daily to the church. The church is the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3 and Ephesians 2. The church is the mother of the faithful, Galatians 4. And so we stay close to her bosom, we stay close to the church for salvation. So why is Article 28 written in this this strongly worded way? It's because Guido de Bray was a missionary. And Guido de Bray asked himself, where is salvation offered? Where will people hear the good news of Jesus Christ and be saved by grace through faith? And his conclusion was the church, the church. It's not gonna be found at home, it's not gonna be found at the beach, it's not gonna be found in the, in the forest, it's not gonna be found in the endless masses and, and statues and relics and the impossible to understand preaching of the Roman Catholic Church of his day. Salvation by grace through faith is offered and available where Christ's voice is heard. It's offered in the church where the gospel is preached. So he pleads with people not to abandon the church. And so we should take the call to join and maintain the unity of the church so very, very seriously, even when persecutors are breathing down your neck. Because it's where the gospel's found, and it's where salvation is offered. Don't be content to float around like a free agent outside of the church as God institutes it here on earth. When I was in Burkina a couple of weeks back, a lot of conversation about persecution, a lot of conversation. And one of the key texts that we discussed is Matthew 10, 28, which we read. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and, hell, and body in hell. The point is this. The point or the goal of persecution is not to cause you trouble. It's not to cause you pain. The goal of persecution is not even to kill you. The goal of persecution is to have you deny your faith and leave the church of Christ. That's the goal. That's Satan's goal. Satan is behind the work of persecution, but he's not just trying to kill your body. He's trying to kill your soul. He's trying to alienate you from the church. King Charles V burned a believer a week for 32 years. But it wasn't like Satan just wanted to have smoke rising from the bodies of God's covenant people. Satan wanted people to renounce their faith before they were burned. That's what he was after. And so Guido de Bray wrote this article to foil the plan of the devil and to help his fellow sufferers avoid the real goal of persecution, the real goal of the devil. He wrote this article because he understood that when you fail to join the church of Christ, when you fail to unite yourself with other believers, when you fail to, to join Christ and his preaching where it is found in a local church, where the gospel is preached and offered to you, when you fail to do that, you have just entered something that is much more scary than the stripes and the knives and the gags and the guns and the fire of persecutors. And Guido de Bret took that seriously, and so should we. In 1561, soldiers raided Guido de Bret's house. They found 200 copies of this Belgian confession, obviously intended for distribution. Guido escaped. And the government of his day made a life-size effigy of him and burned it in the town square for everybody to see. He was enemy number one. For the next five years, he didn't run toward persecution. He wore disguises. He went under false names. He traveled as an undercover missionary. He snuck in and out of cities at night times, preaching the gospel where he went, strengthening the churches that existed, had dinner parties with people to evangelize them, calling people to come join the true church. And after five years in the city of Antwerp, soldiers finally caught up to him and surrounded the city and trapped them inside. They lay siege to the city for three months, and then on Palm Sunday in 1567, the armies of King Philip attacked. And Guido de Bray, he was preaching a sermon. He was preaching a sermon that morning when the cannonballs struck the walls of the gathering and the screaming started. And someone went to the church steeple and played Psalm 22 on the steeple bells as the cannonballs crushed the church. And the armies break, broke through and they rained savage death upon the inhabitants. Guido de Bray gets lowered down a wall. He tries to escape. He's recognized. He's arrested. He's imprisoned. He's chained. He's tortured for seven weeks and then he is executed because he understood that he was duty-bound by God himself as a member of Christ to bend his neck to the yoke and pull in the direction of Jesus, to maintain the unity of the church even as it, the rulers and the edicts of princes were against it, knowing full well that death and physical punishment might follow and did follow. So let me draw three conclusions for our own life from all of this. You have to understand the 
the background of Article 28, don't you? Oftentimes we, we take this article and we just plant it in our own lives and we use it to talk about how people withdraw from our congregation or we talk about how other churches are duty-bound to join our federation and we use it in sort of these, these clean-cut churchly ways, much divorced from its missionary character and I think that's an error. If to think about the Belgian Confession, including this article, think about, think about this document hidden under the shirt of Guido de Bray as he sneaks into a city at night to evangelize a young family over their dinner table. Think about the document that way. Think about the Belgian Confession in Article 28 as literally, the pages literally stained with the blood of young martyrs and their families murdered on the spot because they had this document in their possession. And that is a, physical, that is a, a factual reality of history. Think about this article and this confession as written by Guido de Bray as tears stream down his face, his pen quivering as he writes the article, thinking of the many loved ones that he lost to persecution. Think about this article as, as written in prayer, written with the prayer of a missionary, deep in prayer, genuinely loving those who he's serving, fledging believers that he knows are sorely tempted to go the way of Nicodemus. Think about this article that way, and then ask yourself this question. Do I value the church? Do I value the church? Second application. Article 28 of the Belgian Confession calls us to take great risks for the church of Christ. It calls us to take great risks. Are you willing to take risks for the church of Christ? Think about that. Are you willing to take risks for the church of Christ? I found it interesting reflecting on this. I went to Burkina Faso a couple of weeks ago and I had many people, family members, members here at Jubilee, who asked me, uh, well, will you be safe? Isn't it risky? It wasn't risky. I was in a city hundreds of kilometers from anything bad that was happening, and I was entirely safe the entire time. There was no risk. But I think that question, although it's born out of love, and I understand it, and I appreciate it, that question, isn't it risky what you're doing? Maybe we should be asking the opposite question to each other as Christians, and we should be asking each other, are you taking any risks for the gospel? Shouldn't we be encouraging each other to take risks for Christ? To take risks so that people who haven't heard his name might hear it? Shouldn't that be our question? We're not talking about being stupid. Guido de Bray went in disguise and he organized an underground railroad to help Protestants get out of the lowlands to safety elsewhere. He didn't invite persecution, but neither did he shy away from it. Take risks, brothers and sisters. Take risks. What's stopping us from evangelizing the world today? There's more than enough people 
with the God-given talents to evangelize the entire world today. There's more than enough money in North America to send those missionaries for the next 50 years to evangelize the world today. You know what's stopping us? No one wants to take the risk. And we're not even necessarily talking about the risk of death. We're talking about the risk of having to live without the internet. Take risks. The greatest deterrent to mission today is we don't want to give up our own comfort. Where are Jubilee's missionaries? Where is this church's missionaries? If we want to claim the cloak of being a reformed church, a true church, I think we need to walk a little more in the risk-taking shoes of Guido de Bre and our reformed ancestors. Let's not be too quick to call ourselves reformed if we're not willing to act like our reformed forefathers did. So ask yourself, what are you willing to give up? Are you willing to give up anything to see other people join to the church of Christ? Oh, this sermon seems harsh. It's a harsh article. The last application. Should it happen to you or to me, and may God graciously prevent it, that we become persecuted for our faith in God the Father, don't fall into Satan's trap. Don't deny the church your mother. Don't do it. Stand firm. Remember that the goal of persecution is not to make your life difficult. The goal is not to harm you or to kill you. The goal is to get you to deny Christ and his church. Don't do it. Prepare yourself. Steal yourself so that you might stand in the time of persecution. Resist and hold fast to Christ and ask for his help every day that you might be found faithful. That you might be found faithful if people were to put a gun to your head but that you would also be found faithful in your place of work, in your place of study, in your relationships with non-Christians. Peace and prosperity, pain and persecution, it is everyone's duty to join the church and maintain her unity because to do otherwise is to be contrary to the ordinance of God. Let's pray. Lord, Father in heaven, Help us, Lord, to value the church, our mother, and cherish her unity. Give us your courage to take risks, to promote your glory. And may we be found willing to shed the comfortable and the common to take on the Great Commission. And Lord, on the day of persecution, may we persevere to the end, fearing you more than those who would hurt us. In Jesus' name.